tuned in to the Community Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I've been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. And today we're speaking with Amy Newfield. Amy is a professional unicorn and owner of veterinary team training. After working in general practice for many years, Amy found her passion in emergency medicine and went on to obtain her veterinary technician specialist in emergency and critical care. She has held several board positions in the Academy of Veterinary Emergency and Critical Care Technicians and Nurses, including president. She has published the award-winning and best-selling books, Oops, I Became a Manager, and Oops, My Team is Toxic, both focused on creating happy veterinary teams. And she lives in Massachusetts with her wonderful fur kids, where you can find her eating chocolate, running in the woods, uh, competing in agility, and diving in the ocean. Uh, Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. All right. First and foremost, we need to know, how'd you become passionate about cats? Well, I was very fortunate that my parents really did entice my love of animals as a child. So I grew up uh, with a wonderful dog and then two wonderful cats, as well as some turtles and a gerbil here and there and some hamsters. And um, they really did kickstart my love of animals. So I have them to really appreciate and say, um, thanks, mom and dad, for just letting us have a zoo in our house. It was great fun. <laughs> so, were, you, yeah. were your parents involved in animal care at all or not? Oh, absolutely. I mean, let's be real. Whenever you get a pet for a quote unquote child, um, it's really the adults doing all the work. Even if the child says, I will be the most responsible eight year old in the whole world. Uh, it is always going to be the parents responsibility. So my parents really did a great job. Um, included the animals it, like, you know, they were another kid that they had and uh, we got to celebrate their birthdays and, um, you know, get, uh, travel with them. So we were really fortunate to have a, a zoo in our house and really great parents that supported them um, and us as well. So but neither one of them was a veterinarian, right? No, neither yeah. one. was. Oh, yeah. Very interesting. So you developed this passion for cats as well as most likely for other animals at a very young age. When did you decide you wanted to be a veterinary technician? It's not like you sit around at the Thanksgiving table. I say this all the time, you know, I want to run a community cat group, right? It's not like you sit around that table and you, you, you know, you declare this is what you want to do. So when did you come upon the discovery that you wanted to really focus on being a veterinary technician? Well, in, you know, in my young years, I always knew I was going to work with animals. I was the cliche veterinary professional in the sense that there wasn't anything else I was ever going to do. I was going to work with animals. But in what capacity? I really didn't discover that until my after like my first year of college. I actually entered as a wildlife management major and then very quickly realized I didn't want to spend my uh, days counting deer in a field. So then I ended up finding my way to veterinary technology program. There weren't many programs in the United States in the 90s. Um, as far as AVMA accredited schools, there was just about 50. So there wasn't a ton. Um, and in fact, uh, it, in my state that I was currently going to school, there wasn't a veterinary technician program. I had to actually move states and um, change to a totally different school in order to, to take on the degree. So 
Yeah, it took me a little bit, but I eventually got there. <laughs> Just to keep that in perspective, and I'm, I'm going to fast forward and then we'll rewind back on the conversation. But you just said 50 vet tech schools in the 90s. Correct. What's that situation like now? Yeah. So now, obviously, with most other college degrees, there's online programs. Um, there's, uh, you know, a online as well as in-hospital programs. So there's a lot of different offerings. But right now, in terms of volume, we have about over 230 AVMA accredited program uh, in in the country. So it's a it's a lot different. This has been a very, very growing, big profession, but yet we're still very short staffed. So. <laughs> It's, it's definitely still an issue. It's very much of a challenge. So, yeah, I mean, I would say that the per- perception of the veterinary technician role from back in the 90s to now to currently is probably a bit different. Would you agree with that? A hundred percent. Absolutely. And there's many there's many reasons for why it is so different. Uh we can really thank parasite control for our uh, increased pet owner bond. In the 90s, for those of you who may have been a pet owner uh, that you know during that time period, we really didn't have good flea and tick product. And so while we loved our animals, like I loved my dog, Molly, I loved our cats, Minnie, we had to kind of sometimes love them from a distance because we powdered them with white flea powder or we took our dog to go get a dip in pyrethrin toxic chemicals because there wasn't anything to kill fleas and ticks so easily or readily available. But in the late 90s, we started seeing Advantix and Frontline, and those products started becoming more and more common. And now we have just, I mean, it's like a, a pharmaceutical wheelhouse of however you want to kill parasites. But that's a direct correlation to the pet owner bond, because in in countries and areas of the world where we don't prevent parasites, we might love pets, but the minute we can prevent parasites, we bring them into bed, we cuddle them, they get dressed up, you know, in human clothes, they go on vacation with us, we're more likely to travel with them. Um, so yes, the role of the veterinary technician has had a direct change because of the relationship that pet owners have had with their own pets. And so it's been very interesting and the over 25 years that have been part of veterinary medicine. Um, but yes, the the demand for veterinary care is at an all-time high, and we can look back and thank Parasite Control for that. I have heard reference to veterinary assistant, veterinary technician, CVT, RVT, nurse. What do all of these roles mean? How are they different, or are they all the same? I am so glad you asked that question because very it's very confusing. And especially for pet owners, they should be aware of what all these different you know, titles mean. So unfortunately, unlike registered nurses here in the United States, veterinary technicians don't have a singular title. So it is really truly state dependent. Now, in any state, they regulate the license of doctors, um, and other medical professionals individually. So, for example, a human healthcare doctor in the state of California can't practice in the state of Pennsylvania unless they get a license in the state of Pennsylvania. And that's true with registered nurses as well. Um, so there's different things, but uh, largely doctors are doctors and nurses are nurses. Now, when it comes to veterinary technicians, 
We have veterinary technicians. Those are uh, those of us who have gone to AVMA accredited schools. And just so the public is aware, AVMA accredits both veterinarians and veterinary technicians. Um, so we have to graduate from school and we have to sit for a national exam, just like the doctors have to sit for a national exam in order to get a license. Now, depending on the state, they will change the title of what you are. So, for example, I am a CVT, um, a certified veterinary technician in the state of Massachusetts. But we also have registered veterinary technicians, RVT. Those are out in count states like California, for example. We have LVT, licensed veterinary technicians. And whenever you hear the word licensed, that tends to be regulated by a state entity. So a good example of this is the state of Virginia, for example, has licensed veterinary technicians. And then just to make things even more confusing, we have LVMT, so licensed veterinary medical technicians. And those are in states like, for example, Tennessee. Um, I think they might be the only state, but don't quote me on that. And then we have a push in some of our states for a new title of registered veterinary nurse, which is RVN. Now, that has not come to fruition in any state. So our credentialed veterinary technicians, and that tends to be what we like to really make sure the public knows is that these are the individuals who've gone to school, they've gotten a degree, they've met certain benchmarks in order to be awarded that degree and, and basically that title. It doesn't matter whether or not you're a CVT, an RVT, an LVT, or an LVMT. We're all the same. We've all had to meet the same requirements in order to get that. Veterinary assistants are those who have not gone to school. So, for example, in the state of Massachusetts, where I currently reside, anyone can do my job. And so that means someone who just graduates from high school with no medical experience may be monitoring your cat's anesthesia. And unfortunately, I don't think the large majority of public is aware of the difference. Um, you know, whenever I talk to my friends and family, I always explain to them, make sure you know who is monitoring your pet's anesthesia. And there are some wonderful on-the-job trained, uh, you know, veterinary assistants that honestly can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with veterinary technicians, but they haven't gone to school. They can be trained. They can get, finally get up to speed, but it's obviously going to take them a significantly longer period of time. So I hope that clarifies the difference between the two, but it is a very confusing profession because we don't have a singular unified title within this country. Right. Now, that's excellent. That's a fantastic description of uh, everybody, you know, sort of in the practice and all the different potential labels that you're going to come across. One thing that I've heard quite a bit with uh, veterinary training, when you're training to be a veterinarian, is that there's really not a lot of opportunity to do spays and neuters for, you know, if cats or dogs, and you don't have a lot of surgical practice or understanding about community cat issues and community cats. Is that same thing happening at the veterinary technician schools, or do they cover community cat issues, TNR, you know, clinics, MASH-style clinics? I know you're familiar with what those clinics look like. Yeah. Is, is that covered in technician school? It's not. The problem with veterinary medicine uh, on, in general is it's so diverse, right? When you go into human medicine, if you want to be a registered nurse or if you want to be a doctor, you have one species, human beings. They're fairly boring. Um, they come in different sizes. You've got different ages, but they're a human being regardless, right? You might have a baby. You might have a teenager. You might have someone who's geriatric. But honestly, it's all a human being. In veterinary medicine, when we graduate, I remember when I sat for the veterinary technician national exam, I remember being stumped by a question revolving around ostriches. 
I was never going to work with ostriches. I didn't care about ostriches. Yes, I had to learn about ostriches in school, but I'm staring at this question about ostriches going, I don't know the answer. And I still don't know the answer. It was how to like properly maintain an ostrich um, housing area. I still don't know if I ever answered that question right or not. But unfortunately, part of the issue is we have so much more information that when we graduate, we have the ability to do any species, but we've gotten a high level view of so many things. So yes, the focus tends to be on our pet pets, right? Like our dogs and cats. But I've had, I spent a semester learning about large animals and a semester learning about exotics and a, a semester learning about lab animal. Um, so getting into the other conversation like, you know, trap and release or um, community cat issue problems or things like that. There's just not time in the years to cover it because we leave our with our brains going, oh my gosh, did I just learn about bats and cats and dogs and ostriches? I did. I did. And now I have to go out there and, and utilize it to whatever species I want to utilize it in. It's a little overwhelming when you think about it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Especially if you're going into veterinary medicine, either as a technician or as a veterinarian, and you, and you want to just focus on um, cats or cats or dogs or, you know, in my world, it's about cats, right? We just want to go in there. And really, a lot of it is around learning how to do spay neuter efficiently and effectively and understanding community cat health issues as well as cat issues in general, you know, across the board. And so, so there are some challenges for those of us who are out here struggling with the veterinary capacity shortage, uh, yep. especially with regards to spay neuter appointments where, you know, cats make lots of kittens. What's your take on the whole uh, shortage for spay neuter appointments out there? Yeah, right now, veterinary medicine is struggling with a shortage that I've never seen before. We've always been short staffed. There's never been a hospital that I've worked at where I've said, my goodness, I'm finally completely staffed and don't need to worry about hiring at least, you know, one or two other people. And it kind of has ebbed and flowed over 25 years where sometimes you're very short staffed and then sometimes you're just a little bit short staffed. But now it's at a crisis level. And I think that, uh, you know, we're so tired, I think, of blaming everything on the pandemic. But we also have to look at the reality that the pandemic really did alter a lot on planet Earth, you know, as far as hum human beings going. I think that a large percentage of individuals looked at their role in veterinary medicine and decided that they either wanted to change jobs or that they're not going to tolerate levels of burnout anymore. Um, I think the pandemic was putting a lot of things in perspective for people. We are definitely struggling with veterinarians. We're struggling to find uh, credentialed veterinary technicians and even veterinary assistants. Uh, we're struggling to find veterinary receptionists. Across the board, we just don't have staffing. And uh, unfortunately, it's a profession that a lot of empathetic individuals go into. And we're all bleeding hearts. <laughs> And uh, it will chew you up and spit you out if you don't figure out how to build up some level of resiliency in order to survive in this profession. And unfortunately, I think a lot of individuals uh, during the pandemic was like, you know what, I'm going to reevaluate my life. And this is not it for me, even though I love animals. And so, yeah, I don't I don't have answers. I know there's a lot wrong with veterinary medicine as a profession. I also know I love this profession dearly, and I would never do anything differently. 
Um, but it's a very broken profession and that I think a lot of people aren't aware of. Looking for the perfect way to unwind and connect with some pretty cool cats? Look no further than the Meow Lounge in Westbrook, Maine. The Meow Lounge is your one-stop destination for feline fun and so much more. Step into their cat cafe where you can hang out with a dozen or so adorable, adoptable cats from local rescues just waiting for your love and affection. The Meow Lounge also has games, puzzles, a free library, even a gift shop featuring locally crafted cat-themed items. The Meow Lounge also hosts a wide array of events for you to enjoy. Whether it's yoga, trivia, movie nights, belly dance classes, arts and crafts, or Pilates, they've got it all. So what are you waiting for? Reserve your spot at the Meow Lounge today to experience the magic. Discounted rates are available for students, nonprofits, nursing homes, and community organizations. For reservations and information on upcoming events, visit www.meowcatlounge.com or call 207 207- Three five eight Are you ready to take your learning to the next level? Get your hands on the only all-access pass to all things Community Cats. The Community Cats Pass with Community Cats Podcast. This one-time purchase will ensure you're registered for all of our full 2024 calendar. That's all events, webinars, and workshops from the online cat conference to the online kitten conference from TNR to surrender prevention certification workshops your 2024 Community Cats Pass will ensure you never miss a minute of cat-saving content. Turn your passion for cats into action all year long. Grab your pass today at communitycatspodcast.com. In animal welfare, there's always someone to talk with and learn from. Check in with hundreds of animal welfare colleagues every Monday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern to have your chance at $5,000 just for attending. These 50-minute calls are a collaborative space to share exciting new programs and research, discuss uncomfortable topics, connect with peers in the industry, and more, all while sharing a common goal of preserving the human-animal bond. Go to forum.maddiesfund.org to register now. You can also watch on demand if you can't make it live. So, I mean, there are lots of different thoughts and ideas and you know, I talk with a lot of people saying, you know, that are saying, Stacy, I can't get spay neuter appointments, you know, for two months, three months out. And, you know, it's July and the cats are outside. So they're getting pregnant and they're having kittens. Trying to create some workaround options that, that are out there. I mean, back in the around 2000, year 2000s, and you were in the early days with a spay neuter clinic in Massachusetts when we were sort of starting cutting edge, this is kind of new stuff doing like a high volume, high quality spay neuter uh, program, you know, and I keep thinking about those high volume, high quality spay neuter techniques that we learned for those clinics. You know, can we transfer some of those skills into private practice? Because I do think our cat overpopulation situation, it's it's a team effort. I think it's private practice as well as our nonprofit clinic partners, I think there's a combination at work there, maybe to help relieve some of those pressures, if our private practice veterinarians might also be willing to learn some of these faster techniques. Do you, with you, since you have the knowledge of both sides of the playing field, so to speak, does that seem possible? It certainly does seem possible. I think right now the issue is, is that the private only owned, you know, veterinary hospitals or even say 
a younger veterinarian, they, they're so short-staffed right now, um, just in private practice alone, that figuring out how to add in, you know, spay, neuter appointments from shelters or even doing like a high-volume spay-neuter day, it seems overwhelming to them. It definitely can be done. And, you know, when I was doing that work, it was it was super rewarding. I mean, to be able to to go in there and actually, uh, you know, even though we would do really high volumes, like in terms of numbers of spays and neuters, just this one veterinarian and I, we actually had such great days because we didn't have to deal with clients and we didn't have to deal with money and we didn't have to deal with sitting down and having, you know, a three hour conversation on your cat as a diabetic. Um, and what does that mean? And talking a pet owner through that. And so in some respects, it was so less stressful than general practice. It was just you'd come in, cut, spay, neuter and go home. And it was kind of stress free now that I think about it. So um, I think I think the biggest thing is people are trying to figure out how to get time. And time is absolutely the most important resource that we all have. We can't make more of it. Right. And so um, how do we get time? And I know that whenever I've spoken to veterinarians or whenever even large corporations give back and they donate their time to do high volume like spay and neuters, it's so rewarding. Everybody feels good at the end of it. It's getting them to be able to commit to it and and uh, do it. But I definitely think like when we're trying to decrease the cat population, reaching out to local veterinarians and saying, can we get a commitment for X amount a month or something like that? And sometimes they're willing to do that. I know general practices that are willing to give back to, you know, local communities sometimes because it makes them feel good. It gets the staff, you know, engaged with cats and more comfortable with cats. And yeah, it's I don't have the right answer right now because it's such a tricky, tricky time. That is for sure. <laughs> so, you know, in private practice, um, there is a role for the veterinary technician and a role for the veterinarian. And I'm actually involved in a project down in the um, Atlanta area where we really have the technicians play a a stronger role with the pet owners and sort of being the case manager. And then the veterinarians are brought in on a more specific detailed basis. But really the relationship is there's a relationship formed with the veterinarian, but there's also a relationship formed with that technician. And I think I've read articles about where technicians feel like they're underutilized. Is that a, a, a model that might be useful to sort of help elevate the technician profession? Absolutely. Technicians struggle with utilization all the time. Um, there's few hospitals that get it right, to be perfectly honest. But really, we need to think of veterinary technicians. And again, those are the ones who are credentialed. They have a degree as a registered nurse. You spend more time with your registered nurse than you do with your doctor. We are highly knowledgeable. We even have, um, if you ever hear the term veterinary technician specialist, uh, so that is a veterinary technician who has a degree, but then has gone on and completed another three-year educational um, component and then sat for a board exam to become specialized in a particular area. So mine is in emergency critical care. Um, we can get them in clinical practice. So there's plenty of veterinary technician specialists who are in clinical practice. They absolutely are basically like a physician's assistant, but obviously we can't diagnose or prescribe or do anything like that. But 
they have they have such great knowledge that a lot of times VTSs have more better knowledge than entry level veterinarians. So we've got to utilize them. The pet owner needs to start feeling comfortable having, you know, pathophysiology conversations with veterinary technicians. Let's sit down, have that that talk about your renal failure cat. Let's have that conversation about what dialysis means for that acute renal failure cat that got into lilies. Let's talk about diabetes. Let's talk about those types of things um, because. Listen, I would I could spend hours chatting with you about all of the the pathways of how diabetes does what it does. So, um, yeah, we've got to use veterinary technicians. And here's what happened. I feel so good getting to help a pet owner and increase that pet owner bond. And my veterinarian can go to doctor things like do more spays and neuters, <laughs> you know, which is so key. Uh, so if you utilize your technicians more, then you get to be a doctor more. So if you are a doctor listening to this, utilize your team. <laughs> Go be a doctor. But with that being said, there's management involved. And I know you've written a couple of books, and I'd like you to share a little bit about those books. But you know, also, like the why, because it sounded like you had some experiences managing staff and for the good or the bad, right? And so maybe talk about the books as well as your experiences having to manage people and try and sort of alter maybe some of these behaviors. Yeah, absolutely. I've been uh, had a very fortunate career where I've gotten to do so many great things. I've worked for universities, spay and neuter clinics. I've worked for the federal government. Uh, I work for privately owned general practice. I've worked for large corporations. And so it's been really great. Um, and early on in my veterinary professional career, I ended up oopsing myself into a leadership role. Um, and I didn't know what I was doing and I was terrible at it, to be perfectly honest. I was a technician manager of a small um, general practice and it just, I didn't know what I was doing. I just said, yeah, sure, I'll be their manager. And I, I messed up every which way. I'm pretty sure I did. And then I found myself in other leadership roles. And luckily, I realized I don't know what I don't know. So I went back and got a master's degree in management leadership. Um, it really, me lecturing, I do a lot of lecturing and, and have been very fortunate that people want to be educated by me for a variety of different topics. But I really started lecturing about what it felt like to move from the floor as a veterinary technician. And this applies even to our medical directors who are veterinarians. And then be put into a management role with little to no experience. And one of the slides in my presentation was, oops, I became a manager. And the crowd always like they always laughed at it. And I thought, and if I'm ever going to write a book, that's going to be the title of the book. Um, so it became the title for my first book. Oops, I became a manager. But there was a lot of content and I knew it was never going to be a standalone book. Because unfortunately, what a lot of hospitals leaders struggle with is how to maintain a healthy culture. Uh, veterinary medicine is what I love to describe a bit of a dysfunctional family. We're very empathetic individuals, but we might not know how to play well in, in together in a hospital. And so there's a tends to be a lot of dysfunction at times in, in veterinary hospitals. So the second book, Oops, My Team is Toxic, is your team has unfortunately now gone down a very bad path. And how do we get them back on track? Because unfortunately, that's a very common thing is to have individuals who are negative or toxic or burned out. Burnout is a very common issue. Compassion fatigue, very common issue in veterinary medicine. So um, I've been very fortunate that my career has taken me on so many different paths. I never thought I was going to ever walk down or even run down. And so it's been one interesting wild ride, but I'm eternally lucky that people seem to really resonate with the books and enjoy them and 
yeah, so that's something that I'm I have done in the past couple of years is that and helping, I think, leaders be able to help their teams grow and develop, I think is is another pathway that I can hopefully help influence hospitals. And if we can get, you know, d- uh, leaders to recognize how they can communicate to veterinarians so they can use their technicians more, then we free up the doctors to hopefully, again, maybe give back and to, you know, to the community and reduce cat populations. I'm very passionate about online learning and education. And I also noticed you have some online education available. Yes, I do. I just launched my online veterinary continuing education platform in March of this year. So excited, but still very, very new. It has over 45 hours of race approved continuing education. For those of you who are not familiar with um, vet- credential veterinary technicians and veterinarians need to go ahead and maintain their credentials. So every year in the state of Massachusetts, for example, I have to do at least 12 hours c- continuing education. Depending on the state, it sometimes has to be live and other times it can be just online. So um, this is one of those sites that it's online, but there's also a lot of little short videos. And in fact, there's a lot of free videos, um, including to the general public, you know, there are certain things that I post, um, for example, you know, how to help cats, you know, in veterinary hospitals and things like that, that I would love pet owners to even watch, you know, so that they're aware of the ways that veterinary professionals can decre- decrease the stress experience for cats. Um, because I think cats always kind of are second fiddle to dogs, which is sad. Um, so we we definitely need to do better by cats in veterinary hospitals. So um, yeah, there's a lot of short videos out there on my website and it's new, but can, it's growing very quickly. And um, I've been very, very blessed with the amount of great response that I've had. So if folks are interested in finding out more about your books or these training sessions, how would they do that? Yeah. So vetteamtraining.com. Pretty easy to remember. So just vetteamtraining.com. Um, you can find my books on Amazon. So if you literally just type in probably Amy Newfield or types in, oops, I became a manager, you'll probably find both of them. Um, and the education site you can find on that vetteamtraining.com. So so I normally ask my guests at the end of the show if there's anything else you want to share with our listeners. But I have a final question for you today. OK, <laughs> so if you didn't have to think about money, resources, vet shortage, if you didn't have to think about any of that. If you could create a better world for cats, what would you do? Oh, my goodness. Well, it's interesting because my boyfriend and I uh, had this amazing opportunity last year to visit St. Croix. It's a beautiful island. And um, there were a ton of stray cats at this uh, hotel that we were staying at. And of course, we can't just go on vacation. So I ended up contacting a TNR facility um, <laughs> down there. And now we got the hotel manager's permission. And now we're trapping cats for them. And we're taking them to a spay and neuter hospital in St. Croix. And I said to him, if I had a dream job, I would probably build like a beautiful sanctuary on this island and live on this island and just trap cats all day long and help help make this a better world for our cats. There was one orange male that we could not get that really angered me because I was like, you get over here right now. Uh, But he never got in the trap. So I was sad about that one. But um, yeah, we spent our week scuba diving and trapping cats. So there you go. (laughs) So making sure that every cat has the opportunity of being trapped and TNR'd and, you know, every cat has 
whatever it is that they need because cats yes. all need different things. But it's about providing the resources and the care in every community. You know, it's that I always talk about a toolbox and it's just making sure that we have enough capacity for care or they talk about access for care. There's capacity for care within a sheltering environment. But I also think that there is an environmental community capacity for care that's also important. And we need to make sure that that is able to support the, the community at large. So we need enough spay neuter appointment access, whether it's through private or through a nonprofit, low cost, normal cost, affordable cost, you know, TNR programs, rescue groups, you know, special needs cat groups. There's a whole variety of, of support out there. Um, that a community needs to be successful. And I believe in it. I believe it can exist. And, and I don't believe it all is funded from one source. I believe it's all there. I think we just have to be creative and um, thinking about our solutions. So we're working towards it. And, um, and I know you're working towards it. I appreciate everything that you do, Amy, for animals. I know it's an emotional roller coaster at times. So thank you for everything that you've done. It's so great that you became a vet tech in the 90s and you're still here and you're and you're energetic. We can hear the energy through in this conversation. So, Amy, I want to thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest on my show. And I really hope, 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 hope we'll have you on the show in the future. I am like one of your big groupies. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a true honor. That's it for this week. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. We love to hear what you think. And a five-star review really helps others find the show. You can also join the conversation with listeners, cat caretakers, and me on Facebook and Instagram. And don't forget to hit follow or subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single show. Thanks for listening. And thank you for everything that you do to help create a safe and healthy world for cats.